because it's exactly what it feels like when mm -hmm. you've got extreme abdominal Crohn's pains it's like yeah that's what it feels like there's an alien trying to and I've probably made that joke at times of like I feel like there's an alien trying to burst out of my belly Welcome to Psychocinematic, a podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular films and TV. I'm your host, Stephanie Fornasia. If you love our podcast and want to give us some support, make sure you're following Psychocinematic Podcast on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. And check out our website, psychocinematicpodcast.com, for access to special bonus content, episodes, early access, stickers, and contribute to our regular fundraisers, join our Patreon. Starting from $3.50 a month, you can be the coolest psychocinematic listener there is. I'd like to start today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording on today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects to elders past, present, and rising, and also just acknowledge that I'm currently sitting on stolen land. And I'd like to introduce my wonderful co-host today, Christopher Cosgrove. Welcome to Psychocinematic, Chris. Hello. Nice to be here. Do you prefer Chris or Christopher? I should just check that. I always say Christopher when I'm in trouble. And Chris <laughs> yeah. the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit like Steph and Stephanie for me. Yeah. So Chris uh, completed your Bachelor of Fine Arts in Film at QUT and then began your screen career in Mingjin or Brisbane, uh, which is the land that you're on today, I assume? Yes. Yes, lovely. Um, editing TV commercials and corporates. In 2018, he moved to Sydney to study directing at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, or AFTERS. It was there where he wrote and directed Boldly Go, an autobiographical short film about the challenges of dating with a colostomy bag. The film's comedic and heartwarming tone proved to be a hit with audiences across the globe, garnering official selections at over 20 international film festivals, including BFI Flair, the London Queer Film Festival, Real Abilities New York, Leeds International Film Festival, and Inside Out, the Toronto Queer Film Festival. The film also received a market screening at the 72nd Festival de Cannes. Is that right? Yeah, it's French. Festival de Cannes. Let's go with Festival that. Festival de Cannes. <laughs> um, short Film Corner and is streaming on ABC iView. Chris currently works part-time as a digital content producer for a disability services provider whilst continuing to develop his own creative screen projects. So it's such an honour to have you on the podcast today, Chris, um, especially because we're always, we're talking about lots of depictions of mental illness and disability, and it's a real treat to be able to talk to someone who has created an actual depiction of a mental illness or disability. So thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Pleasure to be here. Just to start with, tell me a little bit about your experience in the film world and what made you decide to study film? I think I grew up in a family where we were all big sort of film fanatics. So I, I always appreciated like watching films. I was always really artistic. And so in like school, we didn't have a film program at my school. Uh, so I did a lot of like visual art and drama. Uh, and I loved English and writing. And so it wasn't until I got to the end of grade 12 when I was trying to decide what to do for university that someone even suggested perhaps you should consider doing film. And at that point, I kind of wasn't prepared to make that jump. And so I sort of, I was academically, uh, you know, I performed quite well. And so I had these sort of expectations of like, well, that's not a real job. You know, I can't do an arts job. <laughs> so <laughs> I diligently enrolled myself in a Bachelor of Business in acting. <laughs> oh, that'll have a bit of creativity in it. And after two years of that, I think my soul was completely pulverized. And that was then I had a tutor, a fantastic tutor 
I remember that last semester who his day job was a copywriter for commercials and he had basically seen some of the stuff I'd written and was like, Chris, what are you doing here? You should be in film school. And it was, I think, the first moment I kind of had a real sort of career counselling from someone in the industry. Mm. Uh, so I took that definitely on board. And so that's when I applied then for the Bachelor of Fine Arts not really think I'd get in because I didn't have any film. So I remember coming to the interview. At that point, they used to have an interview process and I just like brought like this crazy person with a trolley full of like all my artwork that I just like all of my um, things I had made, you know, sculptures and paintings and then like excerpts of drawings. I was like, look, I promise I'm really creative. I just haven't made film before and um, managed to get in, which was great. And then oh, fantastic. From there I just kind of fell more and more in love with it. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. I'm glad that you made that transition because clearly you've got real like natural talent in that area. I guess today I asked you to come on the podcast because I, I thought you'd be perfect to talk about a chronic illness that I've wanted to capture on the podcast for a while, which is uh, inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's. So I uh, really appreciate you willing to, to share a bit about that and how you've captured that through Boldly Go. I guess to start with, um, I might just run through what IBD is and please feel free to correct me if I get anything wrong. I'm mostly taking yeah. this from the internet. But inflammatory bowel disease is a term for two conditions, which is Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis that are characterized by chronic inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. Prolonged inflammation results in damage to the GI tract or gastrointestinal tract. And I thought it'd be good to clarify the difference between um, IBD or inflammatory bowel disease and IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which is also quite common. And there is a very big difference in the two, although they can sort of share similar symptoms. Irritable bowel syndrome is more classified as a functional gastrointestinal disorder, which means there's some type of disturbance in bowel function, which is suggested to be caused by disturbance between the brain and gut, which is often why psychological counseling is given as a treatment. There's usually no actual inflammation or damage and rarely requires hospitalization or surgery. And there's no sort of way to actually diagnose it because you can't actually see it on imaging. Whereas IBD is much more severe in its impact you can see it in a, in a screener and can cause some real significant damage to the colon. So if, if anyone's hearing these two sort of descriptions of symptoms, that's like, yeah, something to keep in mind if, if you're suspected that you've got one of these things. Did I get that right from your understanding, Chris? Yeah, I think so. Um, one thing I think that's kind of important to sort of mention is that it's very much like a Western medicine classification system or yeah. treatment. Yeah. Uh, so I think sometimes people, you know, I've heard friends who have IBS and can be really debilitating and the condition mm. can be just as bad sometimes as friends that have Crohn's. And yet there's this sort of, you know, sometimes thought that's like, oh, that's not, that's not as bad because that's IBS, you know, that's not IBD. Um, yeah, that's a good point to make, yeah. It's more sort of just like a clinical definition around what's causing the illness, I suppose. Yeah. Not necessarily how severe your symptoms or how valid your pain might be. Thank you for saying that too, because I feel like particularly with anything with the word functional in front of it, there's a lot of misinformation or some judgment from people that oh, it's, it's not as legitimate as other chronic illnesses or conditions, but it is absolutely legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. There's obviously different indications for why those disorders or uh, syndromes occur. And that's why one is classified as a dis disease and one is classified as a syndrome. So yeah, that's, thank you for sharing that. Do you mind uh, sharing a little bit about your own experience with Crohn's disease? Yeah, sure. So when did you first notice uh, sort of symptoms of Crohn's? So I think it was around 2007. I would have been about 21. I'd probably like 
in hindsight had symptoms before then and not necessarily kind of paid too much attention to them. But certainly it came to a head around that point in my life. Uh, what had started to happen was I'd probably always had a bit of what some people call, you know, an upset tummy. I'd had pyloric stenosis as a baby, which is sort of when you're born, where like the bottom of your stomach is kind of constricted and you need a little surgery to open it up. And mm. so I always was, had like a little reflux and, you know, often easily get sick uh, as a kid. But at that point when I was around 21, what kind of drew my attention to it was I was starting to go to the toilet and I was like losing a lot of blood when I was going to the toilet. So I was in when I was doing a poo, basically. Yeah. Um, and at first... I think I was just like, oh, that's weird. Um, I don't want to have to think about that right now. <laughs> and probably being, you know, a young male, you know, might have fallen into a stereotype there of like, that'll probably just go away by itself. Uh, but it didn't and it proceeded to kind of get worse. And then I remember one night I went to Lou and it was really bad and it was just like, this is like a scene from, you know, uh, The Shining or something. <laughs> this is terrifying. Uh, and so that was where I think I was really scared and had to tell mum and dad and then, we went to the hospital that night to emergency and that then sort of triggered then a chain of diagnostics, which ended up doing my first uh, colonoscopy would have been you know, that week. Mm-hmm. And from that colonoscopy, they could see straight away that I had quite severe ulceration mm. in my large intestine. That would have been so terrifying to go through that process. Yeah, it was. It was really scary, particularly because I hadn't heard about Crohn's before. I guess, you know, you don't know much about a colonoscopy when you're that age. It's not something Mm. people normally do at that age. Thankfully, I had an amazing, just by luck, an amazing gastroenterologist that was my first connection. And so she was the one who did the colonoscopy she was quite young which was rare I think it was the fact that it was a, a female doctor a young female doctor I really connected with her mm. um, and she was really human and I think was good at working with young patients um, yeah. and could acknowledge that number one it was just a scared person in front of you yeah, before all the medical yeah. stuff and was really good at dealing with that. Um, I remember her saying when I woke up from the colonoscopy, I was like, okay, look, this is what we're seeing. Um, you know, it could just be a one-off, but we need to do some blood tests, which will confirm it. But she said, look, I'd better fret o frog that it's probably Crohn's disease. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember just thinking like that's an unusual thing for a doctor to say. She had a great sense of humour. And mm-hmm. so that straight away gave me a little bit of consolation and trust, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like she was pretty amazing and I think sadly we don't always have medical professions that really get it and how to talk with particularly young scared people so it's really valuable when there is one that really just helps you in that experience. Yeah. Shout out Dr. Lisa Barrett. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. So what sort of transpired after that point? It sounds like that was obviously I don't want to out your age but a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that then kind of began I guess the beginning of my sort of Crohn's journey. It would have been, uh, I'm trying to remember now, I, I think about a year, within that first year probably it would have been, basically when you're diagnosed with Crohn's, one of the first things they tend to do is they just hit you really hard with steroids to mm-hmm. try and get inflammation down. So once yeah. they'd done the blood test to confirm that it was Crohn's because they could see my white cell markers were really high, which means you've got like active inflammation in your body. Mm-hmm. Um the first thing they just want to do is just try and get the inflammation under control. And so it's really common to even today still do a lot of steroid treatment, even though a lot of those drugs kind of 
are very old um, and they're mm-hmm. kind of, you know, like trying to hit a needle with a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a lot of other impacts to your body at the same time. So yeah. I remember, and they, I, you know, she did warn me, but, you know, you gain a lot of weight. It makes your face puff up um, mm-hmm. and you go really red in the face. You get really hyperactive. Uh, so sort of sleep was all over the shop, quite manic on those large doses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that in itself was a whole sort of crazy experience um, of just doing the prednisone. I remember that first year. Yeah. Once they get the inflammation under control, usually the next thing that the doctors want to try and do is then put you into remission or keep you in remission. So remission is this term they use for Crohn's, which is basically the disease itself can come and go throughout your lifetime. Uh, And there'll be periods when it's really active and you have what they call like flare ups. And then you'll have periods where it's inactive and you can kind of live a normal life. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the goal is always trying to keep it inactive. And so the immunosuppressant drugs is to try and maintain that or Mm -hmm. extend the period of remission between flare-ups those drugs also have their own sort of side effects Mm -hmm. uh they're you know the ones i was on they're sort of mildly cytotoxic they can have you know for some people like my younger brother was diagnosed with crohn's year after me he wasn't able to tolerate that first sort of dose until they found an alternative because for a lot of people it can have issues with your liver function Mm -hmm. so there's complications even just with the treatment where they're trying to sort of find the right medication so you can go on a journey while you know we test different medications on you to find which one works Um, I've fortunately always been pretty lucky with the meds that I've had where they generally I haven't had major side effects or major contraindications with my medications but that can also add extra complications to people's Crohn's yeah definitely Mm. uh once sorry once I'd had the immunosuppressants um but that would have been within that first two years the condition had still sort of not really got much better and I was Mm -hmm. quite sick and basically what had started to happen without me realizing was I was having really frequent bowel obstructions I just thought Mm -hmm. at the time was like I've got really bad gastro I'm vomiting every weekend but that went on for like about six weeks um and then I remember being I was just in like a new share house and I was sort of on my own at the time because the other housemates were out and just having probably what people describe when they have like appendicide, like a burst appendix. It was just like yeah. extreme abdominal pain. Like excruciating. Yeah. Fell out of the bed, couldn't move, got the phone, called an ambulance and then got admitted into hospital. And whether it happened at that point or it then proceeded to happen over the next night, uh, but essentially what proceeded to happen was my intestine had burst. Oh, uh, so I had a, a perforated intestine. Um, mm. So I had to have an emergency, uh, what's called an ileectomy, which is where they remove the ileum which is just a part of your intestine basically it's a bit between the small intestine and the large intestine so that had to be cut out but because it had already perforated I'd had peritonitis which is like where you get sepsis where basically because you know stuff that's going through your intestine tract shouldn't be mixing in with your blood and so you get crazy infection yeah and so I remember going into the procedure thinking like at that point they'd said oh hopefully it's this keyhole you'll be awake in a few hours and then I woke up the next day in ICU and had a colostomy bag Mm. and at that point no one had mentioned anything about colostomy bags like a zero discussion until that moment and um that was definitely extremely disorienting. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Mm. And so that was sort of the first time I'd had a, an ostomy and then they were able to reverse it sort of three months later, which is okay. common when you've had some bowel procedures. People don't necessarily know that about ostomies. They can mm. sometimes be removed um, so they can connect the bowel back up together again um, once it's had time to heal. That was sort of the story of my first ostomy bag, I guess. <laughs> and then 
I've since had to have one further on for longer periods. I've had multiple bowel resections over the course of the last sort of 15 years. Mm-hmm. So it's been a, a very life, well, it is a lifelong condition, but also um, continuous ups and downs and pretty significant surgeries in that time. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. Uh, and I guess to point out to you, like if you are listening and maybe you've just been diagnosed with Crohn's, I'm definitely on the more like extreme end of the scale in terms of surgical intervention. So when I mentioned my younger brother, he was diagnosed with Crohn's year after me. He's had no surgeries, so mm-hmm. he's still you know, I can experience quite a lot of pain and discomfort and there's times when he's, you know, unable to work, but it doesn't necessarily mean, I think the stat is 80% of people with Crohn's need to have at least one surgery in their lifetime. But in my situation, I've had you know, quite extensive surgeries, but that's probably not a, a stereotypical case study. So mm-hmm. <laughs> don't necessarily freak out if you're listening to this. Yeah. But I guess um, from what I'm reading as well, there's a, there's quite a spectrum of how Crohn's can affect an individual and quite a range of different symptoms that people can experience. So just because you're diagnosed with Crohn's doesn't mean it's going to be this medication and this is what's going to happen and this is how you're going to experience, I guess, just like any illness in a way. Yeah, that's right. And Crohn's is also a bit unique compared to ulcerative colitis where Crohn's can affect anywhere in the digestive tract. So whilst it's most commonly the intestines and the bowel, it can actually be anywhere from your mouth to your bottom. You can have issues with Crohn's Mm. disease. Mm. And so some people will have Crohn's symptoms completely separate to stuff to do with their bowel. Mm -hmm. Can I ask what it was like, especially that first three months period um, when you didn't expect it, having an ostomy bag for the, yeah, for that duration of time? Yeah, it was uh, definitely a wild ride. It was a couple of things. One, just physically, I guess I, because it was an emergency operation, it meant I'd had like a very large incision running the whole way down my abdomen, you know. Mm don't know how many staples <laughs> uh and so those first three months that was all still healing as well so yeah. even just mobility and walking around and things uh but I was young and so I was probably still trying to do a lot of things naively that I probably shouldn't have been doing so I remember you know it would have been the week after I got out of hospital I was in hospital for about two or three weeks and I'd got back into my share house, uni share house, and it was about day three, you know, my other housemate's like, hey, we're just going around the corner to like a house party and do you want to come? And I was like, sure. And <laughs> if anyone knows, Brisbane, the engine, it's very hilly. And we yeah, drove. <laughs> don't miss uh, that. <laughs> and, and, and just around the corner actually involves, you know, three or four very steep incline declines. And so I remember getting to this party and, um, could barely breathe just from like the exertion of it and then going to the party and being about an hour in and then realizing what's that smell and I thought I had stepped in something and then went to the toilet and realized that the bag had started leaking and that was I guess the first time I'd encountered that Mm -hmm. because i was still very new to the whole journey and things like, you know, sweat can affect adhesives. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of tricks that you learn along the way to manage things. And certainly I guess those first three months would have been a big journey of just discovery and learning how to manage day-to-day life. Mm. Um, Mm. A lot of people normally, if you were having an ostomy, in most circumstances, there would be some sort of preparation time where you might get some counselling or therapy training before the procedure where you probably learn some of that stuff. Yeah. But in my case, that kind of didn't really happen. So it was sort of learning on the fly mm. as we went along. Were you offered that after the procedure as you were recovering? I was. There were, so there were stoma nurses at the hospital 
who I remember on day one of me waking up were very animated coming into the room, <laughs> to, you know, very enthusiastic to teach me all these things. But at that point, I was just like so full of fentanyl that yeah. you know, the room was spinning most of the time. And yeah. I remember it was actually too much. I just wanted them to leave the room. I, I couldn't actually look at the bag for about three or four days that mm. the nurses would come and do the change. And I actually was at that point, I just can't even process this yet. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so it would have been about day three when I was prepared to actually look down um, and see what had happened. Um, and then it probably would have been about the first a week or so after that, when I was prepared to be involved, even with the changing, you know, I'm seeing what's called the stoma for the first time. So the stoma is like the little part of the intestine that, comes out of your abdomen when they make an ostomy mm-hmm. uh and you know even that if you've never seen anything like that before is quite terrifying it's like it literally looks like I've got some of my guts hanging out of me mm-hmm. this can't be okay how is how are we all so cool about this <laughs> <laughs> so you know learning learning to normalize that and that you are safe this is okay you know this is may not seem normal but is in fact normal mm-hmm. a lot of people have these it's a daily you know procedure that happens yeah. in most hospitals mm. but it's certainly the, the person going through it it seems anything but that yeah 100 percent. that would have just been such an, a difficult thing to process and it makes sense that it took you a few days just to like come to terms with what you've got and then you had another ostomy bag for quite a mm. long period of time mm. how was that experience for you so after that first one was reversed I then I think it was about three or four years before I needed to have another bowel resection the resection was because um a combination of things the Crohn's was flaring up and so there was inflammation in the bowel from the Crohn's but there was also scarring from the previous surgery which is also quite common when you have bowel procedures or anything with your abdomen you can get what's called adhesions where mm. parts of the bowel kind of stick to other parts or stick to the abdominal wall and so because of those adhesions and that scarring what was starting to happen was again I would be eating things and then I would be really nauseous and then vomiting um, or getting intense abdominal pain. Mm. And it was quite inconsistent, which was also really frustrating. It would depend. I had to kind of go through a whole process of learning what it was I could eat and what I couldn't eat. And it basically it came down to consistency. Mm. Is it something that was fine enough to be able to go through considering how narrow the bowel had become at that point? Mm-hmm. And when it got to the point when I was very limited in things I could eat that was when the surgeon was sort of like okay you're too young to just be on <laughs> slop essentially uh, yeah. we need another resection and when they did that resection at the time it was a combination of things they they put the bag back on but that was also the reason why that time it was there for three years was I had also simultaneously started developing Crohn's in a different part of my body this bit's kind of icky. You can tune out if you're gross. Okay. <laughs> Content <laughs> warning for anyone who doesn't Content like icky warning. things. Yeah, but it's something people don't really talk about with Crohn's. Mm. And I think it is pretty common with Crohn's. They're called fistulas, which is where you can the body gets confused and it starts creating little tunnels between, sometimes you get it between parts of your bowel, but most commonly you can get them around your bottom. Um, mm. And so you can get essentially like pockets of infection, which become incredibly painful like I couldn't walk for a couple of months because of when it was particularly bad and the way they have to treat that is they put sort of like it's kind of like explaining like a twist tie like a cable tie like they put like little plastic cables 
around your bottom to keep these little tunnels open so that they don't get infected. But in my case, it kind of, they'd done that once and they had a second one. I think they got up to three and it wasn't settling down. So that was the, actually the primary reason why mm. they decided to put the bag on permanently well, for three years mm. because it completely, they call it like a, uh, called like a deviating ileostomy, something like that, where essentially okay, yeah. it's to be able to shut down the whole lower part of your digestive tract so it can just heal and recover yeah. and you're not having to go to the toilet every day. Mm. Um, and so that was why then that bag stayed as long as it, did to let the lower end sort of properly heal which it did thankfully um right. and that's kind of come and gone over the years but the bag was sort of the only way to really let things properly cover yeah some people when that gets particularly complex um which was on the cards for me they weren't really sure at the time until they did the procedure sometimes you can have what is affectionately called online as a barbie butt uh where they'll completely close off the end of your colon um, mm. permanently and so um, if you imagine what a barbie butt looks like they kind of do something like that to or you or a ken butt uh, then, or a ken butt a barbie <laughs> or a ken butt yeah and then you'll permanently have the ostomy bag from that point they can't mm-hmm. reverse that if they have to make that procedure thankfully that didn't have to happen to me at the time but you know whether or not in the future that might be something i have to look at we'll see yeah yeah It sounds like, and I think you've written this in the notes, like Crohn's is almost like a full-time job in a way of having to manage it and go through quite significant surgeries, also being conscious of things that you eat, et cetera. Is, how, is that, how has it impacted your life, I guess, is my question. Yeah, mentally I've learned to sort of treat it like a part-time job. And when I say that, it's more to do with, I guess, psychologically allowing myself to sort of prioritize the condition and give it the time that is required to keep myself healthy mm-hmm. if I try and do like the 30 rock Liz lemon you know I can do it all um, <laughs> usually and I'll have periods in my life when I get particularly excited and I think you know what I can do it all usually that means I'm heading for a you know spectacular crash medically mm-hmm. so I've learned that I need to kind of think about it like my part-time job and then I have my real part-time job and whatever else in my life but I need to allocate the time to just the maintenance uh which a lot of the times for me is actually just rest that I've mm, grown mm. for me if I can rest it keeps the symptoms under control uh and so allocating that time in my week and and giving myself I guess permission to do that which is mm. another thing sort of psychologically yeah not everyone feels they can do that so that's really important yeah that's right yeah mm. and, and I struggle with it I gotta say like it's not something it's it's something I just use the phrase part-time job because I find for me that helps me kind of click and go yeah okay you're, you're not going out tonight or you're not doing that meeting you're you know you've got your other job remember you've got to go to which is <laughs> lying in bed for the next 12 hours because you have to do that yeah and that just sort of uh, differentiates from I think there's also a, a misunderstanding for people who are not part of the chronic illness community that people who are chronically ill and have to rest are actually having a great time resting and it's like no. nice and fun when it's actually absolutely not, not. usually that's what you don't want to be doing you're yeah. actually yeah, sacrificing something that you want to be doing to go and do that yeah instead mm. I was reading as well that it's not 
not really about diet, but sometimes diet changes are a big part of that management. Um, how has that affected your sort of diet as well? Yeah, so diet with Crohn's specifically, because it's an autoimmune condition, I think that's one of the big misconceptions that I get asked a lot when you say you've got Crohn's, like, oh, so like, what's that? What are you allergic to? Or what what can't you eat? Because people think it's something like celiac or like like an allergy, but it's because it's autoimmune, it's actually not triggered particularly by a food. It's not caused by a food, but foods can uh, aggravate the symptoms. Mm. So really common ones for Crohn's, like usually the first thing they'll say is if you are a smoker, can you do everything you can to stop smoking? Because they know that smoking really aggravates the condition. Alcohol and coffee can also mm aggravate but there's also I mean different different people different food groups for me certainly I know that uh alcohol I can kind of have one or two um but not like perhaps when I was 18 and we go out dancing and drinking and I would still do it at that age even though I had Crohn's but I it was not good for me and learning that actually it's not worth that pain Don't, Mm. don't do it to yourself for me I have diet restrictions now but again it's sort of back to do with the the bowel narrowing and structuring so I've had I think I've had four bowel resections and they've kind of got shorter in intervals so there was like it was like four years apart then it was three years apart and then the last one was two years apart so Hmm. when we get onto the film basically I made the film sort of six months after I'd had the bag come off um, Mm -hmm. and they did a resection then and then it was only the year after the film so 2019 I needed another one Mm -hmm. and I was aware that they were getting more complicated the procedures I think the last two I remember the surgeon saying afterwards I don't want to do that again Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and there was sort of some complications with the last surgery where I'd sort of I'd lost a lot of blood during the procedure and I just felt especially weak and drained after mm-hmm. the last one and perhaps it was just psychologically knowing that it had only come two years from the one before and I always kind of feel like it takes about a year for me to kind of get back on track after yeah, yeah. having that disruption in life and so when after sort of a year after this last one I started having these same symptoms again of sort of bowel obstructions I just didn't want to jump back on the same bandwagon I felt like I've lived with this condition long enough now after like 15 years that I am knowing my body pretty well and mm. I've, you know knowing how to look after myself and so I spoke with my gastroenterologist my surgeon and said look you know is there an alternative to just having another procedure and there was but it just was very sort of unconventional which was basically they can give me like liquid nutrition but mm-hmm. usually that's reserved for quite elderly people who mm-hmm. have other reasons why they can't swallow but the product does exist and you can live off that and, mm-hmm. and get your nutrition just lifestyle wise most people choose not to do that yeah and for me I thought well I would actually rather have the consistency and the regularity yeah. in my life that's what I felt like I was missing yeah that I've just spent most of my 20s and 30s in a very unpredictable sort of lifestyle yeah you know, so many times I've had to cancel a holiday at the last minute or you know had even just the next day you know I had an important work thing on and then I've had dinner and then been throwing up all night and I can't go to work the next day yeah so I just wanted a period of stability and so I decided I would give it a go so I've now Mm. done that for the last two years where I've been living on the essential nutrition so it's like these six poppers a day that I have Mm -hmm. and I can still have things that are liquid and dissolvable so I still get to have ice cream um, which is great and custard (laughs) and a lot of like sugary things because they dissolve Mm -hmm. not so much savory things and we've kind of just got a plan with my doctors where it's like look we'll just reassess every year and you know if you're maintaining your weight your inflammation markers aren't going up, you're not having bowel obstructions, then, you know, basically the ball's in my court. Mm. If I get sick of it, 
then I can always go and have another procedure. Yeah, yeah. true. So how is it going so far? Has it been successful for that two years? It's in terms of not having bowel obstructions, absolutely successful. So awesome. that's been fantastic. The bigger journey, I guess, is like a psychological yeah, one. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I, I guess, you know, when we talk about, you know, superpowers that sometimes you can develop as a side effect of having uh, health conditions or disabilities. I have learned a lot about how adaptable I am in terms of, I guess, you know, we talk about neuroplasticity, mm. that I've learnt some of those skills where I can know that, look, this is hard now, but it's just a habit change and it's a thought process change and, you know, being aware of that, I guess, and I've been able to have some great therapists help me. And so working through mentally the steps, I know that mm. my body's okay, I'm not going to be vomiting, but psychologically it's like, okay, this is really weird. You've been eating for, let's give away the age, 36 years, 37 years, <laughs> and now you're not eating. Of course that's going to feel really weird and mm. you're going to have days where you're going to feel pretty depressed about that. Mm. Especially when so much of life is about food and, you know, there's food festivals and going out and socializing is always around food and family. And yeah, so that must be a huge uh, adjustment to make. Yeah. And that is a whole separate thing. And I feel like that, that was an issue before I'd even decided to go on liquid. Yeah, true, true. You're you're really spot on there that because so much of social activity is based around food, that a lot of people I think that I know that have Crohn's or gastrointestinal issues, that can become quite stressful. Just the thought Mm. of even like, going to a social gathering because we're going to be eating because you're always worrying like well what if they serve this or what if I can't have that or what if I get asked about xyz uh particularly if that is something that is you know has been quite traumatic for you it's this process of like okay we have to revisit this trauma every time we sit down for a group meal Mm. um and sometimes you just don't have the energy to do that or you don't necessarily want to do that for sure and so yeah in in my circumstance I've learnt with the central nutrition uh it's great for morning tea morning tea or afternoon tea so (laughs) if someone says let's catch up for lunch I'll be like how about we catch up for morning tea instead uh because you know I can sit there and drink a coffee or drink a tea and still be engaging in the same situation as everyone else as opposed to feeling like I'm being excluded or doing something different yeah and I guess that's hard for other people to adjust to too like having family dinners and stuff where you know you're you won't be eating with everybody else and which is should be completely fine and accepted but I'm sure you get lots of questions you know just having that inconspicuousness it's the formal dinners that feel the weirdest I must say like you know I just had a wedding a couple weekends ago and that that they are weird when everyone's there and you know laying out the formal dinners and then you've got your little papa there like (laughs) I always feel like I'm a little six-year-old with my little juice (laughs) juice papa sometimes I'll pour it into a glass just to feel fancy you know (laughs) um generally people if you can explain it to them you get really good at learning shorthand ways of explaining something that hopefully doesn't prompt too many follow-up questions mm-hmm. um but it's yeah. part and parcel of living with the condition yeah yeah well it sounds like that you've come through a lot of like you're saying using therapeutic and um psychology being able to accept that part of the journey in a way that hasn't stopped you from doing what you want to do yeah tr- i try yeah I, it's not always it's not always 
easy and there are times when I fail but I try yeah (laughs) thank you for sharing all of that because I think it's it's such a stigmatized condition it's so rarely talked about particularly when things come to poo people don't like to talk about poo yeah when we all poo so well you know we all have a gastrointestinal system so you know thank you so much for sharing and being being quite open about it as well Actually, one question. Did you feel comfortable talking about Crohn's from when you were first diagnosed or was that a bit of a journey as well? Oh, absolutely a journey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It was really scary, definitely, at the start because I didn't know anyone with Crohn's. I don't think I'd actually heard of the word Crohn's before Mm. I was diagnosed. So you kind of have to learn about it yourself first before you get to the point where you're comfortable answering questions or talking about it. So, yeah, it's definitely a journey in and of itself. Mm. Um, And perhaps a segue into the film, but for me, I was doing two journeys at the same time that I was diagnosed with Crohn's. It was only sort of six months after I'd came out to my Mm. friends and family, which I'm sure, you know, the stress of that period of my life probably didn't help the condition aggravated it. But it did mean that 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 first couple of years while I was sort of learning about Crohn's and learning how to talk about Crohn's, I was also doing the simultaneous journey of sort of learning about my sexuality and how to talk about my sexuality. And Mm. there were a lot of very uncanny similarities of this Mm. whole like sort of coming out process of like having to tell people things about yourself that perhaps you don't really want to right now or you know it's the right thing to do but you're not really feeling terribly comfortable about talking about it just yeah. yet. And yeah. invasive questions perhaps as a result of sharing exactly. that. Exactly, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing with me your story and to the audience. And, yes, that is a great segue into uh, Boldly Go, which is the film that you made, which you can everyone can watch on ABC iView right now which is amazing and I think it was published on them like three years ago yeah it was it was a, a pre-covid baby <laughs> yeah it, it, I was meant to fly to London for the queer film festival the week before the border shut so I remember oh. yeah cancelling the flights it came out just as all that was sort of kicking off yeah which is so unfortunate but I'm glad it <laughs> slipped through at least for audiences to see online I absolutely love it. I remember watching it when I think you were sharing it online that you that you created it and just thinking it was so well made and amazing. And if I can just see, hopefully this is a compliment to you, not, not anything else, but it reminds me of some of those amazingly raw and funny stories like Please Like Me and also Heartstopper, <laughs> which yes. I'm watching at the moment, but just really beautiful and acting was really good. I love Please Like Me, so that was, yeah, good. that's an honour. <laughs> I think that's what I was aspiring for. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so how did it start out? Like you sort of shared a little bit about your own journey and why that might have inspired it. But tell me a bit more about how it started out as a concept. I had been teaching in Brisbane, teaching video editing sort of as my day job. And I had always wanted to get into directing and basically health had taken over most of my 20s. And then I had this little window when, yes, when the bag came off in 2017 after it had for three years and having had that fresh resection sort of I got a new lease on life where suddenly I could eat things again and I was putting on weight and generally just feeling better and so I decided well look now's the best time because <laughs> it's probably only going to start to get worse again physically so now's the best time to do what you've always wanted to do I've always wanted to go to there's like the National Film School in Sydney uh, the 
Australian Film Television Radio School. Mm. And so I applied to do, at that point, they had a one-year directing grad certificate that was part-time. It had to be part-time, that mm-hmm. whatever I was going to do. Yeah. And part of the application process, I'm pretty sure you had to write a sort of a three- or four-page script. And so that was, I think, when I wrote the very first draft for the film. I thought that was a story that I thought would be pretty unique and one that I thought had my best shot of getting in. So it was probably a little bit manipulative in a way initially, <laughs> where it's like, you know, I'm just going to give them the the raw trauma and hopefully that they the can't say no panel, to that. <laughs> yeah, the artistic panel will love it and turned out it worked. So um, that was kind of how it began, I guess, getting into film school to do this one year course. And then the main assessment, sort of the the capstone piece for the year was we would make a five-minute short film that had to have two actors in one room. And I think that was it, an old dialogue. One scene, two actors, five minutes kind of thing Mm -hmm. was the restrictions. And so that was probably then when the script kind of evolved into what it is now. I think you did such an amazing job too, like knowing that those were your restrictions. Because like if I was in film school, I'd be like, how do, how do I make that engaging? But you really built a world around the film. So like you could tell that they had just come in, they were at a party in one of the main characters' bedrooms, which is, you know, there's just so many layers to it. And like, you know, he's a sci-fi nerd and, you know, there's some questions around being comfortable with your sexuality as well as the Crohn's representation too. And one of the characters having a bag and in five minutes so much is conveyed in such a a natural way too so I just think you smashed it Uh not that I'm you know person who decides but you know I just think it was so brilliant. Should I give the listeners a little synopsis of? Yes, yes. Sorry, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm sort of going in assuming people have already watched it, but yes, give us a synopsis. <laughs> if, if you haven't watched it, yes, basically it's these two sort of early twenties guys. There's, it's clearly they're coming into a bedroom. There's a party going on outside, and they've been drinking, and there's sort of a flirtatious behaviour between them. And you, again, yeah, you're trying to figure out what's the relationship here. Clearly they have a bit of backstory, but you get the sense this is sort of first kiss territory. And that's sort of what proceeds to happen. But then one of them is then very uncomfortable suddenly and wants the other one to leave the room. And that sort of sparks a bit of conflict, which, you know, at first the person who's being rejected think it's it's because they're not comfortable with their sexuality. It's a bit of a red herring. But then the other person sort of admits that, no, it's actually because they've had a surgery and they have an ostomy bag and they haven't you know had sex since they've had it and they're feeling sort of self-conscious um which then ultimately leads to this moment of sort of acceptance from both of them where the person who doesn't have the bag is sort of going well at the end of the day I just like you so I want to be with you and the character who has the bag is sort of going on this transition of okay I'm gonna be really open about this thing that I'm really nervous and scared about and feeling some shame about perhaps and then being embraced regardless Mm. in in a very tight five minutes (laughs) it's so beautiful (laughs) very very tight beautiful (laughs) five minutes and yeah that's I thank you for sharing that because hopefully that explains to the listeners why it's such a journey in such a short amount of time. I guess uh, one question I had to, because um, I, I did read some of the reviews of it as well, which were very positive, that there's like a sort of undercurrent story of, of shame and how that's a common experience for people with ostomies and also members of the LGBTQIA plus community. How did you want to sort of like, what did you want to say about that sort of aspect of it through this film? I guess that was sort of the heart of the film. The, the theme that I sort of set out trying to hopefully achieve uh, was 
looking at how you overcome shame uh, mm. internally. Like if, if you're someone who's living that, what is necessary to actually get beyond that position? And I guess from my own personal journey, it was learning to completely let go and be prepared to be completely honest, completely accepting of your circumstances, the good, the bad, the ugly, mm. and then allowing yourself to be vulnerable with the people that you care about or that you, you know, want to have healthy relationships with. And so, you know, unless you can come to the table being honest and open, you've got to make that first step and then hopefully the other person's going to meet you. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't control what the other person's going to do. But if, if you can't make that first step, then of course nothing's going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that was the journey, the emotional journey that I was wanting to show mm-hmm. uh, that that transition of I'm really nervous about this, I'm really scared about this, I'm uncomfortable about this thing about myself to, okay, well, I'm just going to trust you and I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel, raw, unfiltered and hope that the other person kind of catches you Mm -hmm. and I also really wanted really really wanted to make a positive one because there's a lot of queer films especially Mm -hmm. that tell that story but they don't end well you know they always show the negative flip um where and and that happens in life but personally I'd seen a lot of those stories I'd seen a lot of those films and I didn't always find it helpful when I was coming out yeah um seeing those stories and those films they pretend to make me more depressed or Mm. more closed off and so I wanted to see one where you know it was a really healthy depiction Mm. of how that can conclude um, yeah that relationship yeah 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 I agree and it's really nice to see I guess almost like a blueprint of uh, how one should respond when you know someone is being very vulnerable and honest and open about something they feel nervous about whether that's a a bag ostomy bag or whether that's how they identify Etc. So and I think uh, the actor Adam does that really well. I yeah. For the interview, and he just is this amazing sort of shift in his whole body language, where he you can see he's like, okay, he's thinking about it. How do I respect, how do I respond to this? And then everything just kind of relaxes in him, and yeah. it's like he kind of reaches like, okay, well, it doesn't really matter. I just have to be here with you. Like, I just, yeah, I just have to be show up, kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. The rest will sort itself out. Meet uh, you where you are. Yeah, yeah. How did you find the actors too? So they're Nikolai Lafayette and Adam Solis. Yeah, yeah, they were incredible. Um, so again, you know, student filmmaker, I don't have a huge background <laughs> directing actors. So that was the point of that year. And it was a fantastic year of workshopping and learning techniques of working with actors, but they certainly had a lot more experience as actors than I had as a director. Part of the challenge of the course, I guess, was that we didn't really get to do a proper audition process, which was just mostly because of resources. Mm. So we were able to work with like a casting agent where we could send them a profile of this is what the character is and then we could look at like an online directory and find ex- actors and see their show reels and kind of pick a short list and then send them look this is who I'd love but you didn't you didn't know until the day of filming what actors were going to show up so we wow. didn't get to do any rehearsal so the first time I met Adam was him arriving you know for the makeup room that morning Nikolai I cheated a little bit <laughs> <laughs> because he had come to a work workshop earlier in the year at afters and he got assigned to me when we were workshopping an early version of the script and he was just so fantastic (laughs) 
and I felt like okay well, we've already done an hour of work with you so <laughs> let's like capitalize on that so when I when it came time to casting him I just put his name number one I was oh, like yeah. can I please have Nikolai and thankfully he was free and said yes but the two of them hadn't even met each other as well until wow their, their chemistry was so strong it was incredible and I you know they were just so so generous they you know for something that I think some actors could be really uncomfortable with the mm-hmm. content the subject matter they really came again open-handed and they taught me a lot they were really respectful really open to notes and dialogue and they uh, even though they hadn't met each other before I was so impressed with how well they were able to develop that chemistry Mm. we didn't have a lot of time for rehearsal I think we had like an hour for rehearsal and makeup so the whole film if you just like if you watch the film we made the whole film in a day I think between like 9 and 4 p.m. Um, it was like a crazy amount of shots to get through, which we also had to have like a 45-minute lunch break in the middle. And that had to include makeup. And mine, of course, was the only film that involved some sort of like additional prosthetics. Yeah. Right? You know, we had yeah. to fit the bag and do a prosthetic scar. And so I realized that the only way we're going to be able to do this is if we can do the rehearsal during makeup. And so when we did the makeup, I got them to do some connection activities where it's sort of like a film school one they teach you where you do like a 20 first dates questionnaire uh, yeah. between each other so you develop sort of some you know, intimacy. intimacy really quickly yeah yeah and then the next thing I was like look I'm just going to be brave here because I feel like it's going to be really important that we have some sort of physical connection before we get out onto the stage floor and it got to the point where the makeup artist was about to start putting the bag on Nikolai and I was like, well, I'll just see what happens. So I just said to Adam, I was like, hey, do you by any chance want to put it on? <laughs> and I think Adam could see exactly what I was doing. But again, he was like really open and, you know, prepared to give it a go. And mm. so he was like, okay. And so that meant that the first time that ever really sort of touched each other, you know, beyond probably a handshake was then, you know, being physical in that space around mm. the abdomen and, and making that connection. The other thing I did with the ostomy bag was I had filled it with um, like flower gel, which is like this, yeah, like silica gel with water mm-hmm. in it, yeah. um, which gave it like a very disgustingly accurate weight <laughs> and <laughs> consistency. And, and I remember when Nikolai, the moment he put it on, like straight away, he was like, oh, whoa, this is really weird kind of thing. And it was fantastic too, because it gave it straight away this authenticity where I could see yeah. for the first like hour, he was constantly like rearranging his pants and like making sure it wasn't falling off and like this, this feels weird. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's it. Like, that's exactly what it's like yeah. all the time when you have one. Yeah. Uh, so that worked really well. Yeah. That's fantastic. I feel like that really came through to like the connection between them as well as how uncomfortable he felt in his mm-hmm. body. So that's so brilliant. Um, it's really nice to hear how you sort of achieved that in the background. Yeah, they, they were amazing. Five stars. <laughs> awesome. Um, so it did get selected for a lot of film festivals. I interpret that as winning awards. <laughs> and I'm sorry because I, yeah, maybe misinterpreted that incorrectly. But, yeah, share, share with me, did you end up going to any of the film festivals that it was selected for? The local ones. So mm. um, I was able to do, like, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, uh, and then the first international ones I was, yes, I had my ticket to London um, <laughs> and it was going to play in the BFI theatre at Southbank. Oh. Um and then, yeah, thanks COVID. COVID. Uh, thanks, COVID. So cancelled the flight. And then I think the BFI, then they were like the day before the screening day because at that first it was like, oh, no, the festival's still going ahead. And the day before mine was meant to screen, they then 
cancelled the festival. They did, I think, then put the whole thing online a couple of weeks later when they'd sort of figured out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a bit disappointing. But it was weird because it then also then proceeded to do a lot of festivals across America and sort of Europe. And, in fact, people at that point were kind of, I don't know if it worked in my favour because everyone was looking for something to watch mm. from home. And so there was a lot of then festivals that did whole streaming festivals, film festivals. And so I got to do, you know, some Q&A panels for festivals over Zoom that I probably wouldn't have done because I wouldn't have been able to fly to, yeah, yeah. to do that. Um, so, you know, in some ways it might have given the film some more exposure. Mm. Yes, unfortunately we didn't win any official awards, but we got a lot of what they call official selections, which is mm. when like the jury panel sort of picked the film for the festival. So I was pretty happy with that. It was like, it's my yeah, second film. I made a very dodgy film in my undergrad, but we <laughs> we won't talk about that. The undergrad film doesn't count. Um, <laughs> I, I was very happy that it yeah got the number of film festivals. And then the fact that ABC then picked it up for Ivy, that was, I was really happy with that. Too. Yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. It was also featured on Film Inc, which is a pretty popular publication as yeah, well. Yeah, short film of the week for them. Yeah. Yeah. It was brilliant. I really love this audience feedback, which I found on YouTube. Sorry, I did a bit of stalking. For the April 2020 LGBT Wild Sound Film Festival, and they had a, you probably know this better than me, a video of everyone giving their feedback on Boldly Go. And someone said, and I think this snails it, one of the most important succinct pieces of transformative media or cinema that I've seen in quite a while, and I absolutely mean that because representation fucking matters. Um, I just think that really nailed it because, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly, particularly with obviously we harp on a lot about disability in film. Um, It is really hard to find, apart from some of the more more ones that people are more aware of, it's really hard to find good representation of disability in film that isn't just like a joke or a throwaway thing. Yeah, and there's perhaps like, there's a bigger discussion there, I think, around just how accessible the industry is to work yeah. in the industry, which I think contributes to that. So even just in, you know, my own experience, I, I find it very hard, uh, the nature of the film industry in Australia and certainly seems to be the same in America. Uh, it's a very, very crazy work hustle culture. It's very common for people to do 12-hour, 14-hour shoot mm-hmm. days, have six, seven hours off and come straight back to set and then proceed to do that for six weeks. Yeah. So I, I, I couldn't do that. I'd be yeah. in hospital after week two. And so unfortunately the, the, the nature of that infrastructure, that whole system, studio system, and the way that that's financed means that it has a lot of gatekeeping, um, I think. And it, we're starting to see the shift, particularly I think in Australia through Screen Australia and the state funding bodies where mm-hmm. they're allocating funding um, for development voices and and access needs which is fantastic but until we start to see more of that Mm. it's always I think going to be limiting how many stories we see on screen yeah definitely minorities or yeah with disabilities Mm. particularly when we it's always better it's always a better film when it's created by someone with that lived experience and if those people with lived experience can't get through the door to actually make the film then we're not going to see as many of those depictions you can always tell you can always tell when it's a film written by like where the topic was not written by a person from that (laughs) demographic or yeah minority yeah so authenticity is I think really important yeah I think people want to see that as well audiences are usually smart enough to know when that this is a bit bullshit I think yeah 
and and like I don't know if you've seen um the new Heartbreak High on Netflix. Yes, yes, we covered uh, it yeah. on the podcast. Oh yes, okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, I look at that and think yes, like there's, yeah. there's there is a future here. That's where we need to hundred percent. Yeah, that 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 model of filmmaking. Yeah. Also, the SBS show Latecomers is great. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's um, definitely yes. worth watching. Yeah. It's really good representation, and hopefully they'll it, that opens the door too yeah. a lot more. So on that note, let's talk about some depictions of IBD and ostomies in film and TV. Actually, before I go through them, I wanted to mention one thing because I think it's pretty paralleled, not film or TV thing, but have you heard of the musician Perfume Genius? Oh, yeah, I love Perfume Genius. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I did not know this and I've listened to his albums many times, but um, he has Crohn's. And, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and he has used it in his music quite a lot, discussed it a lot in interviews as well, and a lot of his lyrics are references to his life with Crohn's. And there's a few articles which I'll link where he talks about about it, particularly during the pandemic uh, lockdowns where he was quite unwell and it sort of prevented him from being able to commit to the album that he was working on, which he eventually did release. But yeah, I just thought that was really interesting, um, particularly as a queer person as well, because yeah. his lyrics are also very, re- very much referencing to being a queer person as well. So um, yeah, I just, I just thought that was interesting because he's a musician that I love and it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to go and read all that. That's fantastic. Yeah, so now I just want to listen to all these albums and pick the Again. pick the references. <laughs> just thought I'd mention that because he's not in the film or TV industry, but obviously very established musician. But in terms of film and TV, is there any particular references that you've seen to Crohn's in movies and shows that you'd like to talk about? There's not a lot. Like, I've got to be honest, I haven't seen a great deal out there. Usually, if there is a reference, it's it's a joke. It's like sort of yes. a punchline. And sometimes they're fantastic. I mean, I've got to say, there's been a few of those where I have laughed so hard just because <laughs> the fact that it's been mentioned and then that it was a joke as well. The ones that come to mind, there's the show The Thick of It, um, which is a Armando Iannucci, who's the creator of Veep, um, mm. which is his first show. And there's a I haven't seen it, but I love Veep. Yeah, there's a oh, it's a fantastic show, very dark satire, uh, sort of government bureaucratic satire. Mm. And there's a fantastic scene where this new director comes into this department and he's sort of you know try to tighten everything and make everything more efficient. And he's kind of whinging at one point to the office secretary about a staff member he's seen go to the bathroom like the 10th time today and they're just clearly slacking off and then it's just the secretary just so coldly shuts him down where she goes something like well that's kevin and he has crohn's disease (laughs) (laughs) it just comes completely out of the blue and then he's sort of like startled and shocked where it's like oh okay i don't want to get cancelled um and sort of kind of moves on but it was you know again just even though it was just mentioned for me it was like oh that was that was fantastic yeah Um, and there was another one i saw recently in nora from Queens, Aquafina is Nora from Queens. Oh yeah, I haven't um, seen that either. In the second season, uh, she's working at a like a CBD shop, and there's a customer that comes in who has Crohn's. And again, it's sort of just the punchline of the joke, really. Um, she's very pale, very emaciated, and mentions that she has Crohn's. And then Nora just proceeds to just talk over the top of her about, like, um, her pooping <laughs> <laughs> habits. Um, and it, it is quite funny, but perhaps not the best depiction in terms of agency or mm. uh, breaking down any stigma. 
Yeah. But I must confess, I still laughed, but I have a dark <laughs> sense of humour. And do you think, because I feel like it's still okay to laugh at those jokes. And I think sometimes I'm accused of like trying to cancel a show because I don't like a representation, but I think it's okay to engage with it and, and enjoy it as long as we acknowledge that, oh, this is a bit off colour or, you know, that's not the best representation. Yeah, yeah. just be critically aware of what you're watching and yeah. don't just take it, you know, spoon fed. Yeah, definitely. I actually looked up Ostomy Bag on uh, IMDb and the results were just terrible. <laughs> like there was no, <laughs> you know, there was like joke references and um, films where I was like, was there an Ostomy Bag in that one, etc. But there was two films that did come up, which I haven't seen, but I thought might be worth mentioning. White Boy Rick, it's, it's a Netflix film from 2018 starring Matthew McConaughey and it's a, based on a true story of an, a drug dealer, Rick, who is also an informant for the FBI. And in real life, that actual Rick was shot by a drug lord, which severely damaged his large intestine and led to him having an ostomy. So like in that depiction of what happened, the main character, I don't think it's Matthew McConaughey, I think it's a younger man, does wear a pouch and you actually see him, see it on screen and see him emptying his pouch. And the screenwriter did say that they wanted to show some vulnerability, sympathy and empathy that the character deserved by depicting the ostomy in that way. And uh, the United Ostomy Association of America's Joy Hooper was quite happy about that film and said that she appreciated that depiction of displaying life with an ostomy and was able to show a negative aspect of life respectfully. So that's positive, I guess. I haven't seen it, so I can't really say much more than that. Have you seen White Boy Rick? No. (laughs) Obviously, it's not a depiction of IBD itself, but obviously an injury that led to having a pouch. But it sounds like they wanted to depict that to create empathy for the character rather than to create some sort of awareness. Yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll watch that one day. I'm not sure. It doesn't look that exciting <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> but one depiction I thought sounded a bit not great. Again, not a person who has IBD, but in He Was a Quiet Man starring Christian Slater. I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? No. 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 A character, Vanessa, is shot during an assassination and becomes paraplegic with a colostomy bag. She's a love interest of the main character, and then in a moment uh, where she's singing a karaoke song, her colostomy bag falls to the floor and grosses out her audience. So I feel like, haven't seen it, can't really comment, but it sounds like it's used more as a shock device rather yeah. than anything helpful or useful. And interesting that they're both uh, gunshot wounds. Yeah. I, I that perhaps there's probably a lot of, like, if there is a representation of an ostomy, it tends to be like a cop or someone like that, like it's a, a bullet wound. Exactly. Which I yeah. guess is mostly just probably because of Hollywood, because it's America. Like, we don't get shot in Australia that <laughs> frequently. So it's more likely the cause of an ostomy here is, you know, IBD or um, you know, bowel cancer. But because it's the States, maybe that's why they're all injuries and it feels like it's used in a depiction and this is only two examples and there's not many others to sort of represent that injury and how bad the injury was you know this poor person has to have a bag rather than trying to normalize it I guess yeah so more for for narrative Hollywood shock value than anything else yeah because it's not as fun to depict someone with Crohn's with a bag yes and I guess it's it's interesting to think about in terms of how one of those unusual things with the Rossby bag in terms of okay well how do we portray this on screen where it's like okay you want to normalize it but you also don't want to be seen that you're just using it as a plot device to create conflict or yeah gross out the audience and create disgust and so 
I think that's interesting. Like when you talk about that first example where it showed him empty the bag, you know, you could film that in so many different ways, just in terms of your coverage to be more sympathetic of the person and their emotional journey. Mm. Or is this just like a Hollywood gaze where it's just to show something really gross and yeah. like, you know, close up of feces or whatever. And so even just the choices you make as a director sometimes can really change the perception. Yeah. A scene. Like I, I probably should have watched like the clip. It'd be interesting to see what kind of music underlies that scene. Like, yes. is it really like yeah. eerie music or is it like casual music? I think that would make yeah. a difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. If we're supposed to be like disgusted or just intrigued or whatever. Mm. Uh, is there anything that you've seen involving colostomy bags, especially leading up to making Baldigo? Uh, the only one I remember seeing uh, that actually where I saw an colostomy bag on screen before making the film was in Sensate uh, in the first season. I think it's like episode two or something. It's early on. Again, it's a cop and it's like a scene in a bar and he's like fighting with his son. And it's again sort of a bit like a throwaway joke where he throws his Osmi bag on the table in the pub kind of thing as like a, you know, stuff you to the son and like and laughs and kind of deliberately to gross him out yeah all i remember thinking at the time when i saw <laughs> that because i had an ostomy at that point in time was like they're not plug and play like it's not that <laughs> simple to just to do that without one like making a gigantic mess and you know stinking out the entire pub uh i just remember thinking like oh if only it were that easy <laughs> just, if only it were that simple yeah <laughs> probably wasn't written by someone who's had an ostomy back <laughs> no Let's i don't Oh, one thing I came across as well, um, which actually got me thinking about this episode is um, I was reading about Alien and I read that Crohn's was apparently the inspiration from the writer, Dan O'Bannon, who had Crohn's disease. And after experiencing all the the symptoms and distress from uh, Crohn's, he felt like, and this is is a quote, the digestion process felt like something bubbling inside of him struggling to get out, which gave him the idea of one of the most iconic scenes from Alien where the alien punches its way out of John Hurt's chest in that dinner scene. I thought that was interesting because Mm. apparently he was quite secretive about his Crohn's disease, the writer, and, you know, when we think about Alien, and like we think about that scene so I don't know what have you I'm assuming you know. oh yeah I love Alien <laughs> I, and I only just saw this story the other night and I I think it's amazing I'm, I'm so excited by that anecdote because even though he was secretive about it and it, you know obviously was you know on a campaign of awareness about the illness or the condition or anything I was also fascinated that it's like oh isn't that amazing that you've taken something that again can be a real struggle and you've used it as inspiration mm. not only to make art but one of the most iconic film scenes in cinema history yeah uh, and so someone with Crohn's was like oh I'm, I'm taking that that's mine yeah but I'm yeah, gonna be on yeah. that team <laughs> <laughs> that, that that really um, made me excited reading that because it's exactly what it feels like when mm-hmm. you've got extreme abdominal Crohn's pains. It's like, yeah, that's what it feels like. There's an alien trying to, and I've probably made that joke at times of like, I feel like there's an alien trying to burst out of my belly. Mm. Um, and I'll never look at alien the same now whenever I watch <laughs> that scene. Yeah. <laughs> I think that also speaks to how iconic alien is too, because I know as a woman who's gone through childbirth, I think <laughs> often people will see that scene, not knowing that 
sort of backstory as a a metaphor for childbirth and Mm. how violent it is and how how it feels having an an alien inside your body (laughs) so it's nice knowing and I hope hopefully more people know hopefully it gets out more and more it sounds like it's more people are more aware of it now that that's you know where that came from and transforming his struggles with IBD into something so creative and far-reaching I I also just like the idea too it's like okay cool so you're saying I can have Crohn's and make an award-winning script yeah (laughs) lived on forever in Hollywood sure cool good to know (laughs) it's achievable yes so I guess to to wind up in this arena we both watched the king of staten island which was one of the things that did come up of like crones being a big part of it so king of staten island is a 2022 film directed by judd apatow written by pete davidson and judd apatow and dave cyrus which is loosely autobiographical first of all what did you think of king of staten island i enjoyed it yeah so i Rewatched it for the second time. I think I saw it when it came out, and I watched it again last night. I I like Pete Davidson's like comedic performance abilities. I think he manages to balance like the bit like Robin Williams. I think in some ways, like mm. he can do really big bold comedy, but then also then do really sort of vulnerable human drama, which mm. is a rare thing in an actor. So I think I always enjoy watching him on screen. And it's also there's like an element of unpredictability always when you're watching him. You like you don't know what he's going to do next, <laughs> just even in a sentence with his face or with his body. Um, so I think I found that always fascinating with him. And then the story itself, I thought was pretty good pretty feel good <laughs> yeah. Vibes. yeah I have to admit I haven't really paid attention to Pete Davidson until he started dating Kim Kardashian <laughs> 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 I don't know I think because I haven't watched a lot of the later um Saturday Night Live which is sort of where yeah. he's break he broke out um I kind of missed him but he's very he's very clever and very funny mm. Mm. Yeah, I th- I so the film is very similar to his life in that I guess it's about a young man who must get his life together after his mum starts dating a new man. His mother played by Marissa Tomei, who's very good. Yeah. And the new man that she starts dating is Bill Burr, another comedian I haven't really engaged with, who like Pete Davidson's the character and himself like his deceased father is a firefighter. So so the character in King of Staten Island, who's played by Pete, is an aspiring tattoo artist who smokes a lot of weed and has a casual relationship with his childhood friend. So Pete Davidson said this this was kind of the film, what would have happened if he hadn't become a comedian? And in real life, um, Pete's father was a New York City firefighter who actually died in service during the September 11, 2001 attacks, which really affected him. Pete was seven when he died and attributes that death to a lot of his experiences growing up where he said he quote-unquote acted out but also had some pretty significant mental health issues including suicidal ideation so I think as a mental health perspective it's really amazing that he's been very vulnerable with sharing that on screen but he also was diagnosed with Crohn's in real life at age 17 or 18 uh, which is also mentioned in the film I thought there would be more about Crohn's Mm. but there's really just a couple of lines but I thought there were good lines what did you yeah me too yeah I think, like I said, when it's something that doesn't get spoken about very often in films, just any line you kind of grab at, you're like, oh, yay. <laughs> they said Crohn's. <laughs> 
and again that authenticity the fact that like he himself has Crohn's and he's the performer and the co-writer was great to see I think it happens about three times from memory there's sort of three references yeah um, the first one is early on and he's fighting with his mum because she starts dating Bill Burr and he's not happy about that and he's kind of mm. like you know complaining why are you doing this to me like my life's hard enough as it is you know between mm. dad dying you know and I've got Crohn's and that's sort of about it sort of thing <laughs> but it's the second scene I think that's probably the most some sort of representation I guess where mm. that he's at a ballpark with Bill Burr he's you know Bill Burr's trying to get to know him better and Bill Burr's there with all his other firemen sort of co-workers and they're watching a baseball game including Steve Buscemi oh yes who's <laughs> for some <great>. reason <laughs> <laughs> and I think Steve Buscemi is the one who asks him do you want a hot yeah. dog and then he goes oh no I can't I've got Crohn's and then he goes oh what's that and then he says oh it's where like the lining of my guts all messed up and so I just need to shit all the time I think something like that yeah and then Bill Burr says next time just say you don't like hot dogs and I thought that was great actually I laughed a lot at that moment yeah and his response is like I'm just trying to raise awareness which I thought was great (laughs) that was when I laughed yeah (laughs) and he's saying it kind of like flippantly it's sort of you know yeah I'm very on the nose. I'm just trying to raise awareness. I feel like uh, that is the conversation I would have with boomers if, you know, if I had Crohn's. It would be, or you know, you know having mental illness or whatever, it'd be like, I'm just trying to raise it. Like, leave me alone. I can say it yeah, if I want. Yeah. It's very, it was very, it felt like a very natural conversation. It was great. It was, and it was great too because it also highlighted, like we talked about earlier, one of the things is awkward is doing group eating activities. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so it captured that quite succinctly I thought and that balancing act where you're always I think particularly I've felt with Crohn's where it's like how much information do you give away because it's Mm. like you have to provide some for explanation and context but you also don't want to gross people out and it's also one of those things too where it's just the nature of it it's not something you generally want to talk about while eating yeah eating is the time you're prompted to talk about it so it's this weird like contradiction that happens yeah yeah so you sort of feel like there's no way to win here and I thought it captured that very well that scene yeah and the response that you often get from people who don't feel comfortable about that like just don't mention it yeah their immediate response of being like no that's too much information when yes it's common knowledge that everyone has a (laughs) system that gives waste (laughs) yeah Related to that, you don't often see him eat. Well, you don't really see him eat in the film at all from memory. Um, But one thing that he does engage a lot with is marijuana, which apparently he's – Pete Davidson has used medical marijuana for a lot of his life, although he has reduced some of the use of it over time uh, and he, you know, has also engaged in other recreational drugs, which he's had some struggles with as well. But um, he does attribute – his ability to work and to function with uh, medical marijuana. And if he didn't, you know, that's the only thing that's really helped him to eat and manage his pain. So it's good to hear, obviously this is more more in interviews rather than in the film that don't really mention it, why he smokes weed a lot, but it's good to hear some positive representation of self-management in that way if that works for you. Yeah, I think I read one of the interviews where he said somewhere that he couldn't even go on stage for SNL usually because of the abdominal pain from Crohn's unless he had had medical marijuana or CBD. Mm. And I just thought that was really, yeah, interesting and fascinating too that just kind of gave you an insight into the severity of the condition. And it also kind of highlights, I think, that thing of that we just never really know the struggles necessarily that people are going through, the nature of invisible illnesses um, Mm. that on the surface it's very easy to see Pete Davidson and just be like, oh, you're like a celebrity, you know, international celebrity on TV, your life can't be that hard. And 
yet it's like, okay, well, there's this thing that's literally, you know, preventing you from doing the thing you're famous at yeah. constantly and you have to manage that. Yeah, and especially with media really playing up a lot of drug use in celebrities as well because before I knew anything about Pete Davidson, like I'd heard a bit about his, he's been admitted to rehab a few times. He's actually been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which he gets treatment for and PTSD. And, you know, that's also great to hear some of that representation too is that, you know, he's not just the media likes to beat up people who engage with drugs as being like the crazy guy and, you know, he's, mm. he's you know, having problems and, and he's sort of seen that light as being you know and just a drug addict or whatever and I think it'd be nice to have a little less stigma about any drugs but also the fact that it's okay <laughs> you know that he yeah, yeah. Um, uses weed to help him and that shouldn't be like a stigma and great that he's been so vocal about it I think in interviews mm. as well yeah sharing that awareness because I think I remember there was something in the gossip stuff recently where someone on Twitter had like a famous comedian had made a joke about, you know, how sunken and his, how pale he was and like mm. his raccoon eyes, whatever. <laughs> and it was one of his girlfriends that like replied on, on Twitter being like, you realize he has an autoimmune disease. <laughs> like yeah. um, these remarks that people can make sometimes offhandedly without thinking about the reality of that circumstance. Yeah. And how harmful that is. Not just, I mean, Pete Davidson doesn't care, but your friend with Crohn's disease might care. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and apparently in his stand-up, he, he mentions Crohn's, like he uses it for stand-up material as well, which, as you say about, like, you know, comedians in general, it's a nice way to channel your struggles into a, an art form. I haven't seen any of it, but now I will probably. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to say about King of Staten Island? Because there's not a lot of Crohn's content in it, but in terms of representation, I felt like it was pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've got to say it's probably the best I've seen in terms of like something mainstream that one, it references it, tick, <laughs> <laughs> two, it's actually authentic, you know, he has Crohn's and he's the one who's the storyteller, tick, and three, there was some attempt to kind of, you know, look at the subtext there of what that's like to live with in terms of just societal complications that happen day to day around eating and misunderstandings with other people, yeah, so. And in a way, I think it's good to see it not as a plot point as well as just I have Crohn's because yes. um, we don't yes. see a lot of that in films unless it's like this is the movie about this person has yes. this thing, um, like eating disorders or whatever. And it's very normalised. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very normalised and people can feel seen in it without it being like too on the nose in your face. I guess in terms of that and knowing that we've got one little bit of one film, what would you prefer to see from more depictions of Crohn's and more appropriate representation? Uh, yeah, it's interesting because I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier where it's the nature of the condition is it, it is a challenging one, I think, for any sort of screen depiction where it's such a fine line that you're walking between are you trying to raise awareness and normalise condition or are you now exploiting this for... Mm storytelling yeah. or for conflict purposes um, or, you know, shock and awe to the audience. So it's, it's interesting. I've thought about, you know, future films that I might make and, you know, some people ask me would I ever look at, you know, adapting Boldly Go into a feature and I've kind of struggled to think about, okay, well, how, how do you do that in the sense of no one wants to just watch a film where someone's just going to the toilet all the time? <laughs> uh, and, and so it's sort of 
you want to give visibility to the illness and awareness about it, but there's also not necessarily a need to be hyper-focused on elements, I guess. that, And so that probably just comes down to authenticity. I feel like people who have that lived experience are going to make those judgments better. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're going to know what's sensitive and what's appropriate and probably have a better understanding of, you know, what it is that they would like to see on screen. Yeah. What do you think in navigating that? Is there anything you can see yourself doing to ensure that you're representing it in a way that's authentic, but also entertaining, but also not too exploitative, although I'm sure you probably wouldn't do that? (laughs) Well, I think for me, it would be about focusing more on the individual and like their emotional state and Mm. like psychologically I guess the journey that they're going through that you can reference things in the physical world but you don't necessarily need to focus on that with the lens or with the editing the more compelling narrative is I think the journey that you have to go on as Mm. an individual of internal growth or learning to balance you know chronic illness and day-to-day life, um, learning how to navigate relationships with something that also is going to be taxing on your, you know, emotional and psychological wellness. Um, I think that's probably the better point to come at it from. It's mm. it's focusing on uh, emotionally the storytelling aspect of it rather than the physicality, I would yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like you did that really well in Boldly Go in that we see the bag, but it's not like the central piece. Like, yes. um, yeah, it's done in that sort of way where it's it's really about the emotions rather than the bag yeah. itself. Yeah. The internal conflicts. Yeah. yeah. If you were to give anyone advice about anyone making films in this space or wanting to make a film about chronic illness, what would, you, what would your advice be? <laughs> I'd probably go back to that review that representation effing matters. Um, yes. <laughs> so if, if you're going to do it um, and you don't have a chronic chronic illness then go and get people who do have chronic illnesses and bring them in and Mm. you know that hold nothing about us without us so Mm -hmm. find people who have lived experience and talk to them and listen to their stories and then go about crafting that into your story I think that would probably be my main take and if you're someone who has a chronic illness and you're interested in telling that story just go and do it there's no real rules you if you're telling your story you can do it your way so filmmaking's never been more accessible I think than it is today you can actually you can make an award-winning film on your mobile phone you can shoot it edit it submit it it's kind of just up to you having the decision and the the ability to go out there and make it yourself. Mm, Yes, agreed. And lastly, what advice would you give to anyone recently diagnosed with Crohn's or about to have a colostomy bag fitted? Mm, Big questions. Yeah, they're good questions, but two different things. Uh, If you've just recently been diagnosed with Crohn's, most people who are diagnosed with Crohn's are young. The sort of late teens is the most common period, late teens, early 20s. If I think back about when I was diagnosed with Crohn's, things that I would probably want to hear, one, that, okay, this is scary, but it's not going to define you. Like, Mm -hmm. you can still live a version of a good life. Um, It will be challenging, yes, but it's not going to mean that you can't do things that you want to do. You just might have to do them differently and Mm -hmm. change some of your strategies, but you can still achieve your goals Mm -hmm. in some way. I'd say also seek out support networks, that are going to help you. So um, that's, you know, friends and family that you trust, that you know are going to look out for you. But then also, you know, various medical support networks. So Crohn's and Colitis Australia is a fantastic organisation. They've got a great website with a whole lot of information on it. Um, 
be really careful about what you study online <laughs> would be my other advice having gone through it as well mm. but like a lot of medical conditions it, the temptation is just to go to google and type it in um there's a lot of horror stories out there mm. um a lot of misinformation uh it's very easy to lose perspective mm. and to just get really scared i've got to say this i remember googling things and then reading stories and just being like oh my gosh is this going to happen to me mm. um and so just you know one anecdote from one person out of you know the entire global population does not represent your life and in mm. fact i tend to feel it's the people who have unfortunately had the most challenging stories or you know the most uh, medical trauma are the ones who are probably most likely to then talk about it online. yeah um, which makes sense as well yeah it makes sense it makes mm. sense but it does also give you a weird confirmation bias where you yeah. feel like oh everyone with Crohn's is going to end up like this um whereas you know when I think about my younger brother who you know yes Crohn's has been a challenge for him but he's never had to have any surgeries to date and he's you know, only two years younger than me you know he's probably not as likely to jump on a Crohn's message board and mm. write about mm. that yeah and that's actually a lot of people so yeah that would be my other advice just you know, take everything you read online with a grain of salt. Um, and I guess the last thing would be, you're allowed to be picky with your medical team (laughs) if you can. (laughs) I mean, in Australia, we're very lucky, maybe not so much, you know, in America, but whoever is your gastroenterologist, it's going to be like most likely some sort of long-term relationship Mm. with them managing your condition. Mm. So I think it's really important that you find someone that you can work with, that Mm. you feel like is listening to you, um, that, you're present and seen with and that you're getting from them what you need and -hmm. if you're feeling like that's not happening right at the start that's not a great sign um so you can go back to your gp and ask for a referral to another gastroenterologist Mm -hmm. you know uh if you're in a capital city there's going to be a couple to choose from and that's okay like you're allowed to do that (laughs) would be my other advice i guess part of that is also um, being able to advocate for yourself and if that's difficult which it can often be having that support network to help advocate for you as well yeah 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 um and again that's where sort of you know current and class australia as well and support groups can help you Mm. in terms of what you might tell someone who's you know about to have an ostomy that can be for any number of conditions and all sorts of ages and stages of life um medically i would say you know get in touch with the stoma nurses that most of the hospitals who do those procedures will have a dedicated stoma nurse um whose job is there for patient support and education um and they're really you know that's their job they're very skilled at it and they will have an abundance of resources to be able to help you with the next thing i would say is if you're about to have one Yes, it is a change to your life, but again, you will be surprised that you'll still be able to do so many things that you think right now you won't be able to do. I remember Mm. thinking like, I'm not going to be able to go swimming, you know. Yes, I was able to go swimming. Um, Mm. There's so many things that you will still be able to do. It will be difficult for the first few weeks while you're just physically healing. But Mm. once that is sort of out of the way, you can live pretty much a regular Mm. day-to-day life. Which I feel is reflected in Boldly Go too, is that, you know, the the character's at a party, he's drinking, he's hopefully going to get some later. You know, he's um, able to do all the things. Yeah, there's 
also like accessories you can get that can make life so much easier. One that he references in the film is I normally have a belt that's in the wash. Mm. Um, you can get these sort of, they're kind of like made out of wetsuit material that are like um, kind of like a, what people have for like hernia support, like a, a, a strap that goes around your abdomen mm. and it just holds the bag and everything in place. And so if you're planning on doing exercising or swimming, it's fantastic because mm. you just have so much more peace of mind and it almost feels like it's not there. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you can get one of them, they're great you can get all sorts of funky covers people make on etsy <laughs> if you want one that's got like dinosaurs on it or you know cool. um platypuses, you know add some style to your bag why not <laughs> <laughs> um and then i think yeah the last thing i would say is that it's also quite common when you start out that you know everyone's bodies are shaped differently and so it's impossible to make a single product that's going to fit for everyone mm. and there's like a huge range of products out there um different systems so like one piece systems two piece systems different kinds of adhesive different base plates um and part of that initial journey is just like like shopping for shoes like just finding the right device that fits for you mm. and um it's not uncommon like I talked about that story of me going the first couple of days and having a leak that's quite common at the start because you're still trying to figure out one, how to even apply it yourself, but mm-hmm. then two, like, is this the right piece for me? Yeah. Um, and so don't think just because those first few weeks it's like, oh, it's leaking all the time, this is what my life is going to be. It's mm-hmm. not. It's just bumpy at the start while you kind of iron out the kinks. Yeah. And yeah. then generally after that it's fairly smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I found in my case I was healthier with the bag. And that's mm-hmm. you hear that a lot too. Mm-hmm. Generally if you need to have an ostomy bag, then you tend to be better having it yeah, yeah. it's so worth have a better quality the discomfort yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you so much for that I hope lots of people hear this podcast episode and hear that advice because it's really amazing advice and it I feel like people really appreciate having some guidance in the space when it's you know can be quite scary at first as well yeah thank you no worries <laughs> so before I let you go is there anything you'd like to plug obviously your film um how can we see it besides ABC iView and your social media contacts if you're happy for people to follow you uh so for the film it's an Australia exclusive so it's only on ABC iView however if you are outside of Australia and you search for the film, there may or may not be several pirated <laughs> copies already floating around on various streaming sites. So I'm always, uh, there's nothing I can do about that. Sorry, ABC. I mean, that just means um, you've made it, that you're so, being pirated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it can it can be found. Um, just go back a few more tabs on Google and you'll find it. Um, as for socials, yeah, if you're interested in my film and you know what I might be up to next uh, probably the best thing you can do is follow me on Instagram my handle it's just cjc underscore films and you can also check out my website which is just my name christophercosgrove.com awesome and have you got anything that you're working on at the moment or in the future uh, I have just started working on some scripts again I um, I think like a lot of people after COVID was sort of a bit discombobulated mm. and refinding my feet and I had been a bit unwell again with Crohn's mm. and so now that that's sort of stabilizing again I'm back in that like okay let's let's get writing so I'm playing around with a couple of short film script ideas at the moment uh, and I'm also I want to have a go at writing a pitch and a pilot for a TV series um, yeah based on a, a, a kids book that I really loved as a kid but kind of in a sort of like a um, stranger thing sort of space awesome so. <laughs> great well, thank you so much for coming on to Psycho Cinematic and talking to us. It was such an interesting and wonderful chat and I really appreciate your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. 
This podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app.